Welcome to a bonus episode of Mansi, a podcast about the history of magic and its impact on our culture. Each episode, we cover a different method of Mansi or method of magic. Today's episode is sponsored by mentalhealthyfit.org. Mental Healthy Fit spotlights our shadows, shines light at the end of the tunnel, and maps how to get there. It's an arts and information project dedicated to unraveling the stigma surrounding mental illness and supporting mental health resources for marginalized communities. For more information, visit mentalhealthyfit.org. I'm your host, Elle Alder. I'm a professional psychic and solitary eclectic witch. With me is my co-host, RJ Walker. Hi, I'm RJ Walker. Um, the, the roles have been reversed. <laughs> Are you uh, ready? <laughs> yeah, for this bonus episode, uh, but I'm a spoken word poet and writer. Today, we are going to talk about something that is at the center of every reading, ritual, and spell that I do, mental health and magic. Specifically, I'm going to dive into some history of treatments for mental illnesses that are based in spirituality, religion, and the occult, and the ways those shaped modern-ish treatments for mental health. I'm hoping we can find a middle ground between science and mysticism that will show you how you can use magic to support your personal growth and healing. And I want everybody to know that this is Elle's first time <laughs> writing an episode of Mansi. Normally, I do all the writing, but when Mental Healthy Fit approached us to sponsor, uh, they gave us a pretty generous sponsorship, and we wanted to do something very special for them because we really believe in what they're doing, uh, and they're just a lovely sponsor. So we decided <laughs> to, to switch roles this time. I was and now, just go with it and, and now, see if anyone yeah. noticed. They're like, what the fuck is happening? I know. Now L <laughs> is in the driver's seat and I am the one along for the ride. Yes. So I'm really excited about this episode because RJ was like, just do it about how people have been like at the outside of communities, how witches were really just mentally ill. And I was like, fuck that. Everybody knows that. Like, that's such a known thing that I didn't want to talk about it. So I'm talk about some other fucked up shit well okay then <laughs> i mean th- to be fair there are a lot of very specific and fascinating stories that would be worth researching that we yeah. might just put in future episodes of mancy i think we'll have to i also think that like mental health is such it's basically a cornerstone in spirituality and if your mental health is not part of your spiritual practice you're doing it wrong so i think that we'll touch on those just kind of as the show develops but i wanted to kind of do Like a weird deep dive, like way, way, way back to the beginning. And um, yeah. I feel so powerless without a script. I know. Is it not like the most, like the first episode we did, I was like, what the fuck? It's like I know where, I usually know where everything's going to go. I know what we're going to talk about. There are no surprises for me. (laughs) Um, Well, and I, like the best thing that RJ does when we record is like in his script, he writes L response. And then, so he'll say his thing and then he just looks up at me and I'm like, uh, yeah. Uh, I guess I have something to say there. So it's really good because RJ's like, wait, where are the pauses? What are we doing? How do I know? It's a good time. Shall I continue? Yeah, let's get started. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, you forgot. Where do we put the intro music? Oh, no, no. I have a spot Oh, we're not for there it. yet. I'm not done. You thought I was done. I won Oh, Okay. And this is this is the best sentence I think in the whole. Story. Sorry, I'm just like very entrenched in my format, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm so like off balance. Trust me, I okay, got okay. this. I'm leading this ride. <laughs> I'm also going to cover some of the totally fucked up ways people have used magic to condemn and torture people suffering from mental illness throughout history. Ooh, intro music goes here. Thank you. 
I want to start by asking RJ a question. Oh, boy. RJ, when do you think the first interactions between magic and mental health, and more specifically, the use of magic to treat mental illness, happened? Honestly, I'm going to say this goes into prehistory. Uh, A lot of the magic we have studied, like, um, you know, pyromancy, you know, neuromancy, dates back to prehistory. I think humans have always been kind of fascinated with their own brains uh, and why some people's brains work different than other people's brains. And magic has always just kind of been there to help explain this very complex and unexplained thing. Well, I think... Uh, Yes, this is actually my favorite, I think, question that I found in researching. The question people, humans, have been asking for forever is literally, what make it talk? Like, you look at a person, you say, what make it talk? Right? Me me like you, Jeremy, (laughs) but me need know what make it talk. (laughs) What make it talk? I have added in, um, yes, some notes about some of our favorite serial killers in here as well about that question. Well, as long as humans have battled with things that are intangible and unseen, they have sought ways to understand and define them. For the vast majority of history, faith and religious leaders have acted as many things for the people in their communities, including doctors. Treatment of mental illness via spiritual intervention has been the norm and was viewed as the only true treatment option until about 1795. Philippe Penel, I think, was the first physician who recommended talk therapy for patients in asylums and followed through with that treatment plan for the patients at La Salpetere. No, no, it's your turn to pronounce shit, huh? (laughs) There are a lot of accents over this word because it's a French hospital. So Mm. I just was like... We're going to say it wrong and commit to it. Sorry, well, I mean, guys. If, if you think about it, but but what is like confession and like confessional rituals, if not just a very rudimentary form of one-sided talk therapy? For sure. And that's, I think, that space for people to process things without judgment is something that really hasn't existed in society for very long, right? Like, that's pretty much a thing that people used their priests or their psychics for. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, This evolved in the 19th century in America with Dorothea Dix, a social reformer and advocate who was instrumental in creating mental asylums and changing the standard for care for those that were in asylums. She began her work in 1891 after investigating the treatment of the mentally ill Americans in asylums. 1891, you say? So do you notice how far apart these dates are? Yeah. 1795, 1891. Yeah, that's like... It's a hundred years. It's like a hundred years, yeah. Yeah, so if you think about, like, this person was like, maybe we should talk to people instead of putting them in padded rooms. And this person a hundred years later was like, maybe we really should talk about why this is an issue. And at the same time, half the people in those asylums are just like, I just like masturbating, leave me alone. <laughs> Before it's we like, get... No, you have a you have a wandering womb, madame. Yeah, yeah. We need to put you in the asylum. Oh, yeah. So we will talk about some of the truly insane things people have been put in asylums for. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Before RJ's like, when do I stop talking? What do I do? Please help just, me. I'm just improvising. Just yes, 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 ending. Yes, exactly. That's your job. That's my job. This is your job now. Okay. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the development of modern healthcare, mental healthcare, 
Let's talk about what the ancient treatment of mental illness and regular illness, as they were often seen as the same thing and the same malady before science became developed enough to differentiate the two. Oh, yeah, here my neighbor Jeremy is seeing ghosts. We better just put him in the woods <laughs> with a knife and no clothes. He'll be fine. He'll just, you and know. and uh, hopefully, you know, the darkness doesn't take him. Literally, uh, there's a great video game called, I'm rambling, but there's a great video game <laughs> called Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. And it is probably one of the most immersive mental health experiences you can yeah. do. Um, like this this one game and they encourage you to play with headphones and they had a panel of people with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders that helped inform the gameplay and the design of the game. Uh, if you really want to know what hallucinations are like, uh, what psychotic episodes are like, what hearing voices are like, um, playing Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice gives you a great idea and the the main character is called a Gelt, the ancient... British people, Mm -hmm. uh, the Picts who were wiped out by the Vikings. And what they would do is if somebody was mentally ill, they'd be like, well, guess you have to go live in the woods. You're our wise person now, (laughs) but you can't be near the village because you'll bring ghosts. Yeah. Well, and I think I think maybe the thing that's the most frustrating for me, like in mental health and like taking care of my clients that are mental health or mentally ill, taking care of my friends that are mentally ill is People don't understand, like mentally healthy people who've never struggled with these things have no concept of what that truly feels like. And so I think that there's always and always has been a huge lacking of empathy and compassion for people Mm -hmm. that are severely mentally ill. And you see that with, oh, just feel better. Just get over it. You're fine. Just let go, you know? Yeah. And I don't even know if I would call most people, at least in America, mentally healthy. Yeah. Uh, I I think neurotypical for sure. Yeah. People (laughs) who like view themselves as mentally healthy. They're like, oh, I don't know what that is, but fuck you for whatever. Yeah. I know. It's like literally my parents uh, are like, I got beaten as a child and I turned out fine. And I'm like, no, you didn't. Right. Go to therapy. God damn it. (laughs) Why am I the only one? Why is it just me? (laughs) And everybody else is like an emotionally damaged, crumpled piece of glass just slicing their way through society. But, you know. Do you know what I have for you? What? A solution for the ghosts in your brain. Oh. Mm -hmm. Is it Miracle Mike's magic potion? Elixir? It's called... Trephination. Oh, trephination. Yeah, it'll get the ghost right out of your brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is evidence as early as 6500 BC of trephination, a technique in which a stone instrument known as a trephine was used to remove part of the skull, creating an opening. Of course. Through it, the evil spirits could escape, thereby ending the person's mental affliction and returning them to normal behavior. I imagine being an evil spirit where you're just like zoom into somebody's head and you're like, ah, fuck, I'm trapped. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but now I can't get out. If only somebody could drill a hole for me to get out. Well, ancient societies also favored exorcism. Yeah. In which evil spirits were cast out through prayer, magic, flogging, starvation, having the person ingest horrible tasting drinks like Uh sake to chichi, (laughs) or... Noise making. Noise making. Noise making. The general attitude towards illness in the beginning of humanity was abuse the body bad enough and the spirit will want to leave it. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's actually kind of a trope in TV shows. See, I don't have any, like, psychic background. I just know <laughs> history and TV shows and video games. Uh, yeah. But, uh, like, in this latest um, season of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, um, they literally use that method to get an eldritch terror 
out of Sabrina, uh, where it's just like you make them an uncompatible host. Mm -hmm. And when you see like parasites in nature, when these ancient humans examined parasites in nature, that's how you'd get rid of the parasite is you'd make it the host unsuitable and the parasite would leave and search for a better host. So this is, I mean, just totally observational, but I feel like you see that echoed in people who are severely mentally ill or people that are struggling with addiction, that it's this kind of belief of, um, I'm not deserving of these things. I don't deserve to feel good. I don't deserve to be happy because you just have a brain that tells you you shouldn't. So then it's like, I'm just going to use drugs until I die. Basically, a lot of people do that. And that is kind of, I don't think it's even the the approach of humanity anymore, but that's definitely how how individual and severely mentally ill people can perceive things. So, mm-hmm. and it, well, I weird. mean, millions of years of uh, that doing that, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of ingrains it into you know our DNA. Which is, I think that's maybe an interesting way to look at it. If you look at, I guess, generational trauma of mental illness and addiction, that maybe we've adapted these horrible ways of treating ourselves because that's what's always been done. And we just do it instead of the professionals doing it. As a person who tries to actively undo a lot of this with people, it's – this is fucking tough. Mental health care is extremely recent science. Oh, oh, I'm going to get into it. And it's not even perfect. Like even today. Yeah, it's insane. Um, So – Another one of my most favorite and wildest illnesses I found in my research was Mesopotamian and Egyptian papyri from 1900 BC described women suffering from mental illness resulting from a wandering uterus. <laughs> Later named It's just a crawling around. <laughs> Uh, just. Just, the only thing I'm imagining is if you're like, you know, I don't really want to get impregnated by this guy. So your uterus just like detaches and goes somewhere else for a bit. Yeah, it's like definitely, um, definitely didn't uh, sterilize myself. Definitely my womb just, <laughs> just wandered right. into my armpit. Um, I do have to say that the Greeks figured out that this was called hysteria. That's what they named it. Um, the uterus no, could become no. dislodged and attached to parts of the body like the liver or chest cavity, preventing <laughs> the proper functioning and producing varied and sometimes painful symptoms. As a result, the Egyptians and later the Greeks also employed a somo- somatogenic treatment of strong-smelling substances to guide the uterus back to its proper location. <laughs> what the Pleasant odors to lure and unpleasant ones to dispel. Well, I can I can't imagine the ancient Greeks being like, you know, a lot of people when they drink seem to be processing uh, the alcohol with their genitals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's attached to the liver part. Uh, yeah, I just think um, women ex- have always wanted to be treated better, and men are like, "You're crazy." Yeah, I don't want to do that. The the men of ancient Greece are. Did you not silence your phone? <laughs> no, you are so I'm so bad. Today. I'm so bad. Um, yeah, the men of ancient Greece are like, I don't want to do this. I want to contemplate things like, what even are things? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, exactly. Do not have room for your skittering womb. Just, just has little, yeah. little, little like tendrils that like this, crawl around. It's just definitely making me think of Teeth, the horror movie that yeah. everyone has heard of with the woman who has teeth in her vagina. It makes me think of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, wandering uter- uteruses, uteri, wandering uteri aside. 
At the same time, Chinese medicine uncovered yin and yang, or a complementary balance of the physical and mental self, that led to Chinese society being focused around the holistic and natural balance of the body and the world, which is probably why we are still using Chinese medicine, herbs, massage, and other practices to stay healthy now. Yeah, I mean, you can literally, like, learn these um, or um, homeopathic, like, Asian remedies mm-hmm. today, and they still work. They're the same ones, exactly, because they were like, oh, maybe it's a balance, maybe it's both, maybe it's both my mental health and my physical health, instead of really thinking that the two are connected, acknowledging that these are, you can be sick. I mean, having, like, an infection in your toe is not the same thing as having an infection in your heart, right? Yeah. So if you think about, like, the different anatomy, they were like, oh, the brain needs different treatment than the body needs or uh the spirit needs you know different treatment than the body but the spirit and the body are connected and so you need to you know make sure Holistically. both are, mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh i think i think uh they were a little uh, they were a little bit ahead of the rest of the world <laughs> yeah, exactly. in their time exactly. <laughs> i know you just see like these ancient greek guys going like okay time to carve hole in head ka-ching, ka-ching, right. ka-ching. <laughs> So the first theories of mental health being akin to physical health came out of the Greco-Roman era with Hippocrates? Hippocrates? Hippocrates. Hippocrates. I could never think of like how to pronounce it. Hippocrates. Hippocrates. I pronounce some really wild shit in my readings. And so I make up all sorts of fun Listen, Hippocrates is a character in Assassin's Creed Odyssey and Cassandra says it, Hippocrates. 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 Um, so he was alive in 14 and thir- or sorry, 400 and 300 BC and believed illness was caused by the humors, the four essential body fluids, blood, black bile, yellow bile, or color, and phlegm. Being imbalanced caused illness. The theory be- led to bloodletting and a bunch of other things and we u- was used for medical diagnosis until the 19th century. Listen, you're full of goop. That's what humans are. We're just goop. What make it talk? Goop. We're just goop. <laughs> and if there's something wrong, it means you got your your goop is not where it needs to be. You need to fix your your goop. Got to get the goop right. But yeah. that really was um, – they would believe that having too much blood would lead to issues. So then that would be bloodletting or leeches. They would do it that way. And it was literally until the 19th century. So that's 2,000 years of just like cutting ourselves to get some blood out. Dude, imagine being Hippocrates and just being so good at medicine that everybody believes you even though you're wrong for right, 2000 for years. For 2000 years. Yeah. But I think so and I'm going to get into this in the next bit, but it's wild to think about how far back the like dark ages put us. I mean, it was thousand yeah. a thousand years of progress and thousands of years of progress totally wiped out. Yeah, I mean, they were some dark ages. Um, the the thing about uh, Hippocrates is that a lot of our philosophy surrounding medicine still comes from Hippocrates. Things like the Hippocratic Oath, uh-huh. um, you know, standards for patient care, that kind of thing do come from uh, Hippocrates, as well as a lot of symbology. In medicine, like, um, you know, being an EMT, you have the the staff of Hermes as a representative of, uh-huh. you know, healing and uh, medicine. Yeah, for sure. It's yeah, it's just kind of crazy to think about progress and how much progress we lost. OK, this is a wild paragraph and I just need everyone to get on board for it. 
Are you ready? All aboard the wild paragraph. Toot, toot. Okay, and I want y'all to know, it's very hard to pick and choose what you're going to mention when you're covering the history of something. The, yeah, this is a lot. I'll, it's very uh, lightly covering, but I think getting down to some important points. So many episodes of Mansi are just like, we're going to do the broad strokes. Yeah. Maybe focus on one detail uh, or one person or one particular culture. Uh we but, have to give context. I think a lot of what we do is context. Yeah. So I think uh, in the future, when we do more episodes, you might see parts three, four, five, yeah, six. I would think as so. As we, we go deeper down the rabbit hole with some of these. Yeah, because there's a lot of really crazy stuff to dig into. Okay. Are we ready for the wild paragraph? We're ready. So now we move into the dark ages, and we all know what happened then. We lost all of our societal advancement because something, 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 Jesus. (laughs) This is where we start going back to cutting holes into our skulls to let the demons out. (laughs) There exists both cave art from 6500 BC and engravings from 1525 AD that depict trephination. This is also the time period where we start to see witch hunts and trials taking Europe and America by storm. To be honest, covering those feels like the easy choice. So I'm just going to say that witches, that the witches who were tried and were killed were often mentally ill, poverty-stricken, or enslaved people that were generally viewed as society's undesirables. Specifically, the Salem witch trials were started by a 9-year-old and an 11-year-old who dabbled in fortune-telling and got really fucking bored, so they decided to throw an enslaved woman at the feet of a town to have a little bit of excitement. The excitement resulted in 20 deaths and stopped only when the governor of Massachusetts' wife was accused of witchcraft. Dude, the whole Salem witch trials story and, like, the true story and everything is literally just an episode of The Twilight Zone that actually happened. Yes, it really is. It really is. I... Love Salem. RJ and I are definitely going to take um, our RV out and, like, do a big East Coast, like, run through. And I cannot wait to go back to Salem because it was incredible. But I feel like there's so much of this that you can dig into in other places that I want to leave that for them. And I want to do this, you know, this yeah. way. So, and I'm sure we're going to talk about Salem in a future episode. Oh, point. yeah. Like, Without when we go visit, we're going to – we're – Oh, we're diving into some of my favorite parts of the like the Salem story is incredible. And one of my most favorite things that I've ever heard about magic, ever heard about cursing, ever heard about spells comes from that. So we'll do that. We'll dig into it. As the Middle Ages ended, so did the huge emphasis on mysticism as treatment for mental and physical health. This has to do with the importance of religion falling falling away and governments gaining more control over societies. Yeah, the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Soon the Renaissance would bring humanism, the worldview that emphasizes human welfare and the uniqueness of the individual. So that is my wild paragraph that basically yada, yada, yada its way to the Renaissance. I mean, like, a lot of everything that was in the Dark Ages was either, like— this is happening because of God mm-hmm. or this is happening because you are a servant of the devil. Um, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it's like I think the thing that was the craziest for me when I went to Egypt, we um, did tours of like Coptic Cairo, which is the section of Cairo that was for the Coptic Christians when Christians like controlled Egypt. And 
just seeing basically the lengths like people in in Egypt that were part of Egyptian cultures that believed in their gods were living basically in alleyways underneath the city because they could not be chased by Roman or by Christians on horses and um, they were protected by Romans. And so there's a lot of really interesting, I guess, it's not even interesting so much as horrifying to see the amount of history that has been, like, taken away from people and taken away from humans and to know that basically religion destroyed our chances of being so much further along. It's and uh, it also, uh, like, having all that shit wiped out uh, really gave religions a chance to, I guess, shine, take root and really become, like – major religious play religious players like mm-hmm. for the entire world to become like yeah. the main the main religions and uh this is more just like middle ages like europe mediterranean um but you you see uh very different dark age things happening uh in other parts of the world yeah it's all i mean just so heavily influenced anyway like I just I like to not think about this too much because when people are like, oh, Christians have always been good. I just so wholeheartedly disagree with that statement. And they probably aren't expecting the Spanish Inquisition. Um, <laughs> when you bring that up, they're probably like, oh, well, they just didn't know any better. And it's like, they, they did, though. But they did. Because they, they did, had though. the Bible, which is the same book that you're using today to justify actions. So please tell me yeah. what the fuck, someone. Anyway, this is why I'm not Christian. But... We're going to get back in the story. Are you ready? Yeah. I hope you enjoyed my wild paragraph, by the way. I was like, this is going to be so much, but we're doing it. Okay. The 1600s bring about asylums and the hope for infrastructure to take care of mentally ill, poor, unsheltered, and criminals of society. Unfortunately, that infrastructure never came, and asylums became prisons for the undesirables of society, where they were treated like animals and left to rot, chained to walls. Why do you think people were largely okay with this treatment of others? Why do I think that people were okay with that? Mm -hmm. Honestly, for the same reason they've always disenfranchised people. It literally just lets you hide the problem rather than addressing it. Uh, And in addition to that, uh, it becomes wealth generating for the people who maintain these systems of abuse. Um, And we've seen that as a very solid pattern throughout history, especially the history of asylums and prisons Mm -hmm. as these profit centers where they get, you know, laborers or where people pay because they're expecting a cure that doesn't come or a reformation that doesn't come because they don't make money off of reforming or curing people. Um, Mm -hmm. And on top of that, like, who's going to miss them? Right. Right. Is the it's uh, so there's actually a sociology theory called broken window theory. Mm -hmm. Um, The theory goes thusly. Uh, If you're in a part of town and you see the same broken window over and over, you're going to think, oh, nobody cares about that. And you'll probably see more broken windows because when people see something that nobody cares about, they act like it gives them permission to, to not care about to, it. To break it further. Oh, like, oh, nobody yeah. cares about this. So let's go get my dumb teenager friends and throw rocks and break the rest of these windows. Mm-hmm. And that is how urban decay kind of forms. But broken window theory also applies to people. If you see somebody who's disenfranchised, like the same homeless person, over and over and over, uh, you go, oh, nobody cares about that person. And that gives you permission to not care about them. It gives you permission to – it gives – people feel like it gives them permission to harass them 
uh, or even hurt them or kill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's it's really horrible. And it's something I noticed when I was homeless where it was like you become an, an object. You become this sort of like eyesore. You're a garbage bag, not a person. And yeah. you're like, ah, somebody really should clean that up. I think the thing that was – there were a lot of parts of this research that were really, like, striking to me. And I was doing – I don't know. I probably took, like, eight hours writing this. I was, like, at home, like, banging away on my laptop. It was, like, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, are you still doing that? And I was like, yeah, of course. I'm doing research because – I know. I've gotten fairly quick at writing these. Well, I just think that there's – there was a lot of the story that I wanted to, like, flesh out and, like, present – Um, And I think the thing that is the most shocking to me that you will hear me say over and over again from this point on in the story is the lack of infrastructure, that there are constantly people trying to change this and never has there been a resolution to the lack of infrastructure because RJ and I drive around Salt Lake City. Constantly. And we look at how many fucking like huge apartment buildings are getting put up. Yeah. We all couldn't the, afford to all these in. luxury apartment buildings and even the, the shitty apartment buildings are going for way more than oh, we could yeah. ever afford. Yeah. Like there's just like based on like the amount of money that RJ and I made, we could not live in downtown Salt Lake City. We could not afford it. We have like a really awesome alternate solution that I personally like a lot more than that anyway. But we look at this and then we look at all of the people that are unsheltered, like living literally on the other side of those buildings. And we constantly just say, like, what if they just made that somewhere where these homeless people could live? And that was actually the plan in 2015 for Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. They were... We were going to be the first um, we're like, we were officially going to eradicate homelessness. Yeah. So in 2015 we almost completely eradicated homelessness with a um, program called uh, Utah Housing First, where they would literally just give the homeless people apartments. Mm -hmm. And what they found was it was cheaper. It was more fiscally responsible to just give an unsheltered person their own apartment than it is to constantly Move like bull- bulldoze camps and arrest and people. That's like in Salt Lake City. And give them health care. Yeah. Um, in Salt Lake City, the attack on homeless people is like – it's really fucking hard to watch. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. What Truly. The reason we didn't uh, end up getting the Housing First program is, again, the infrastructure – while it was there, suddenly got hit with a flood of people. Mm-hmm. Denver started busing their homeless to Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. They started just giving them bus tickets and 50 bucks and sending them to Salt Lake. And we didn't have the infrastructure for this wave. Right. When that happened, Housing First completely collapsed. And all the people who were like – all the like wealthy people who were invested in this property mm-hmm. management getting government subsidies w- – just turned the housing first into an excuse for these luxury apartment developments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our housing crisis has just ballooned to an extreme level yeah. right now. And I've been part of some of some of these conversations and like there's one guy in Salt Lake who's just like they can stay in my yard. Yeah, he was literally letting – because there was a camp that was called Camp Last Hope because – Yeah, um, and I've known a lot of the people volunteering there. mm -hmm. Well, and in Salt Lake City, one of our biggest – well, like pretty much one of like the only homeless shelters that we had downtown closed. And then they had a huge 
project basically to arrest every every homeless person. And they were saying that they were putting him in rehab and getting him help. And they weren't. They were just trucking him off to prison, to jail. Yeah. And leaving him there. And, like, the amount of people who were just killing themselves that were homeless. Like, my mother works in the building downtown. And she came home from work one day and we were talking and I asked her how her day was. And she was like, it was a really bad day. And I was like, oh, what happened? And she said, there was a homeless man who threw himself off of the parking garage today. Salt Lake City winters are super hard when you're homeless. Mm -hmm. I almost died freezing to death. I mean, I was attempting suicide, but... um, You know, here we are. Yeah. um, It's. I just think, I mean, that's the thing that you're going to hear me say over and over again that doesn't really get less disturbing the more you think about it. And one more thing with the guy and the yard. Yeah. Um, Last weekend, I believe, somebody died in his yard. Yeah, a 45-year-old woman. And here's the thing that I, I think ties into your point is infrastructure mm-hmm. having a yard does not qualify you you're not a, to be, yeah, <laughs> to you be don't have, and you can't take care of them when people are sleeping you, in camps you, outside you don't have the infrastructure this person died uh because they had a uh gas heater inside their tent they, they died of carbon yeah. monoxide mm-hmm. poisoning this is something where if you have infrastructure that doesn't happen if you had uh, buildings for them to sleep in that was getting heated yeah and you had beds and like you know, I get it. You're just trying to help, but don't. It's it's not how, how do it's you do done, this? right? Like, how do you do this? There there are people who have dedicated their entire lives to trying to find a solution, and like the way to do this is to work with them and build on what they're building, not yeah. just be like, you know what, fuck all I'm of you, camp in my yard. <laughs> yeah. The- well, and it's. I think it just is. I think the thing that we're gonna find over and over again in this is just how frustrating it is. To hear how little people have cared about it, have cared about mentally ill people, have cared about homeless people. How many, like, it just, they just don't care. And they're um, the broken window. We, you know, it's all of our job to not let people get there. Truly, it is like full stop, yeah. period, end of discussion. It's all of our jobs to help someone, per, like, stay away from this. Yeah. And, and hold give them the help that they need. And hold, you know, unfair systems accountable. Right. And, like, that's the thing is a lot of people, and I don't want to, like, generalize, but a lot of people who are meant, who are homeless or mentally ill and unable to hold down jobs. So then um, we help them get treatment. We develop systems as a society that take care of them so they don't need to do that. We make it so people can live off of disability instead of becoming homeless on disability. Like, there are a lot of things that we can all do as a society, as people, as humans that exist around other humans to actually make sure these people are being taken care of. So this is me on my soapbox. I got to write the story and I'm talking about it. Okay. So are you ready? Hold on. Oh, no, the bull. We didn't get the bull out. But that was, I think, a worthwhile. Yeah. Very good. Energy cleared. Okay. So the question I asked that led to that tangent is, why do you think people are largely okay with this treatment of others? Meaning, like, just horrible, like, chaining them up in basements. And the answer I was looking for, at least in this time period, now we're at the point that this is, like, learned behavior that we're just so ingrained in our, like, ways that we refuse to change. At this time in the 1600s, it's because just as there was humanism, there was also animalism. The belief that mentally ill people were animals who didn't have any reason or rational thought and that wouldn't be mind being treated as such. Because of this, caregivers believed that scaring patients into obedience was the only way to keep them calm because they had no true concept of how awfully they were being treated. Um, I'm going to chime in and I'm going to say this is fucking Aristotle's fault. Yeah. Um, so 
Aristotle, was it Aristotle or was it Plato? It was one of those fuckers. Uh, came up with this theory uh, of logos, which is language. And the thing that separates a person from an animal is their ability to create language. But uh, if, if somebody is unable to communicate something uh, or even – it's so stupid. Even if they just speak a different language than you, Aristotle would be like, oh, that's gibberish. We can enslave them. And it was literally yeah. used to justify slavery and abuse for straight up like 3,000 years. It was one yeah. of, I would say, Aristotle's biggest, biggest fuck-ups. And so when people get like all misty-eyed about these ancient Greek philosophers, I'm like, they, the fuck they still fucked up though. Yeah. They yeah. still fucked up. We can look at their good ideas, but we got to acknowledge their bad you ideas. You have to. You have yeah. to. Then, in 1795, our savior, Philippe Pennell, began Philippe. serious reform. I honestly stand him. I never knew about him, but I really do. He deserves some props. Um, serious reform of asylums and started more modern forms of therapy, such as talk therapy, occupational therapy, encouraging socialization, purposeful and recreational activity. Dude, Philippe just kicked the fucking door down. He was just like, what if we just treated them like humans that want friends? Like, what if we let them create art? Okay, maybe they're never going to be Picasso, but it doesn't fucking matter. Like, this was the time period when people were like, this is also when we started seeing communism kind of rising up and new ideas coming into play and saying, yeah. kind of, what are we doing? Like, this is after the French Revolution, American Revolution. So we're in that time period. When Wait, I thought we were in the 1600s. Nope, this is 1795. 1795. Yeah, so we're like moving into yeah. this time period where people are we're, like, what the fuck are we doing? We're really leaning into that enlightenment philosophy. Yeah, for sure. Um... This is where we started seeing treatment of mentally ill people become really much more civilized in certain arenas. Uh, you know, in certain arenas. Yeah. What do you know about asylums in America in the 19th and early 20th century? Um, a lot of what I am to understand about asylums at that time is like, A, always and still a place to just throw undesirables. Mm -hmm. uh, B, uh, it it was billed as a place that would reform or fix people mm -hmm. uh, or it was built at a build as a place where they could be safe. They wouldn't be a danger to themselves and others. And, and it's where we get the tropes of things like Arkham Asylum or American mm -hmm. Horror Story where you put a bunch of unwell people in a cage. Uh, and, of course, there is going to be drama and horror and the treatment of these people – and because this was such a new science, they were also like test subjects. Mm -hmm. uh, they were also medicated with medications that weren't like tested. Uh, and some of those ancient beliefs that we uh, that we still hadn't let go of at the time, even even as it was getting better, even mm -hmm. as progress was being made, there was still like that barbarism. And you see it in in media represented as the people in the asylum getting taken advantage of, becoming victims over and over again by the people who run the asylum, shows like Ratchet or uh, Sucker Punch, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's – or American Horror Story Asylum. That's, mm -hmm. that's very much how these asylum stories go. Yeah. So – and I would say, honestly, there's definitely this perception of like, oh, it can't be as bad as media portrays, Right. That like, oh, there's no way this could actually be what took See, place. See, this is one of the things where I'm like, it probably were like that. It, it, it probably, probably were probably, like that. Probably were. Probably were that way. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, prob probably were that bad. Well, I'm going to get into 
a very particular story about this. Oh, yay. So we've been setting the stage all along for this story that we're going to talk about, okay? Oh, great. I'm sure you've heard, read, and watched lots of media that covers the absolutely horrendous treatment of mentally ill people that continues into the early 20th century. So I don't want to go into too much detail. But basically, people there were treated with electroshock therapy, had frontal lobotomies while they were awake, were locked away in rooms that were so cold glasses of water would freeze overnight. Asylums were institutionalized buildings where people would lock away mentally ill family members if if their illness would impact their social standing or if they simply didn't feel like caring for their family members. An incredibly high-profile example of this is the incredibly modern treatment of Rose Marie or Rose Mary Kennedy. Ooh, the sister Kennedy. of President John F. Kennedy. Her father, oh. Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., arranged for her to have a prefrontal frontal lobotomy at the age of 23. Yo, just lobotomies are just wild as oh. a thing that we even did. Yes. And this was in 1941, 80 oh, wow. years ago. Do you know anything about her story and why she was basically rejected from her family? Um, from what I understand, uh, she was mentally ill. I'm not sure what her mental illness was, but she was basically just like tucked away inside of an asylum and forgotten about and basically low-key disowned because the Kennedys didn't want that to impact their sort of like political clout and their image. Mm-hmm. This was like the beginning, like 1940s. Uh, like like 30s, 40s on, like a big part of society was becoming image based. We start to see that shift ever so slightly with mm-hmm. the creation of things like radio, where now you can communicate to people en masse. And so your image becomes super, super important because uh, if you do something bad, it could be on the radio. <laughs> yeah, and people would know. And yeah. this is also – so if we think about – um, kind of America, you know, we're coming out of the First World War, Depression, uh, all of that stuff that's going on. And then we're heading into like being um, – and I think that America has always been a nationalist country, very focused on like we're really proud of who we are since its inception. But this is when we really see that nationalism kind of blow up because of World War II. And, yeah. You know, a lot of the treatment and like just – if you just think about America not being involved in World War II until we were attacked and then we're like, oh, no, you're not going to do that. And we're basically credited with winning the war. Yeah. Well, at least in America, in other countries, it's like – no, it was mostly the Russians. Um. Yeah. So it just is to kind of put that in y'all's brain to think about this time period, 1941, so 80 years ago. The Kennedy family told everyone that she was mentally disabled with an incredibly low IQ. She had trouble learning to read and write. She was reading and writing at a fourth grade level when she was 15 years old. And the Kennedys sent her to several schools for the mentally disabled while they insisted that she learn the social expectations and norms for a woman of her social standing. Around the age of 22, she started acting out, having convulsions and fits that would lead her to verbally lashing out and physically hitting people. Through this Mm. period of time, her family found her to be increasingly difficult to control, and they sent her to two boarding schools at the age of 22, the latter of which she was expelled from because she was sneaking out at night and the nuns of the convent feared that she would contract an STI or become pregnant. Joseph's uncontrollable daughter presented obstacles for his and his other children's political and social ambitions. Yeah, image. When Rosemary was 23, her father decided to have her lobotomized and hid the procedure from his wife and the rest of the family until it was already completed. And he hid it? Nobody knew that she had it except for him. Nobody knew. 
but how they would know something was wrong if they even saw her. No. She was literally shipped off in between boarding schools. So a big turning point was when she turned 22, they had been training her to go be basically a debutante in England. Like they went to go meet um, the royal family in England and she went with them and she was doing great. And they were like, look, she's not even that dumb. She like fell over and they're like, that's fine. At least she's here. And that was all they cared about. And then when she came home after meeting the royal family is when she just was like, fuck it. I'm bored. I'm going to go be with boys. I'm going to sneak out of the coven. I don't want to be here. I want to do my own thing. And then that uncontrollable behavior is what made her father snap. And he said, no, you're getting a lobotomy and hid it from everyone. Yo. And like the lobotomy was really billed as a magic bullet at the time where mm-hmm. it was like, this cures any mental illness when in fact it causes severe brain damage and puts people near catatonic. Not only that, but the procedure itself, in addition to causing permanent damage, Like that part of your brain also can heal. And so it further damages your mental health. It's like the whole story is sickening. If you watch um, the the lore, like the the Mm -hmm. adaption of the podcast into the TV series that's on Amazon Prime, Mm -hmm. they have a whole episode about it that is very educational, eye-opening, and of course, uh, sickening as fuck. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. She was awake during the procedure. James W. Watts, the doctor who completed the surgery, described it as such. Wait, was that the guy who invented it? Could have been. It was him and he had an assistant that did it with him. I don't have internet connection. Yeah, I know. It's fine. Um, So, are you ready for the description? Yes. Tell me all about it. We went through the top of the head. I think Rosemary was awake. The top of the head? She had a mild tranquilizer. I made a surgical incision in the brain through the skull. It was near the front. It was on both sides. We just made a small incision, no more than an inch. The instrument Dr. Watts used looked like a butter knife. He swung it up and down to cut the brain tissue. We put an instrument inside, he said. As Dr. Watts cut, Dr. Freeman asked Rosemary some questions. For example, he asked her to recite the Lord's Prayer or sing God Bless America or count backwards. We made an estimate of how far to cut based on how she responded. When Rosemary began to become incoherent, they stopped. Rosemary Kennedy spent the rest of her life at the mental development level of a two-year-old, unable to speak or walk and incontinent. Later, in an interview with author Ronald Kessler, Watts explained that he didn't believe Rosemary was actually intellectually disabled. He believed that she had a form of depression. Jesus. So, uh, I don't believe... uh... He is the inventor, um, Watts, but he is one of he was one of the like the biggest proponents, like selling people on this new magic treatment, mm-hmm. and the inventor of the the lobotomy, uh, Igas Moniz, won the Nobel Peace Prize for it, and not only that, a third of lobotomies resulted in catastrophic failure. Mm-hmm. Or no, only a third of lobotomies were successful at, at doing anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, two-thirds of them ended in catastrophic failure, extreme brain damage, body damage, uh, worsening conditions. Yes. And so Rosemary actually was hidden away from for 20 years from her family. Bounced between Fuck. asylum to asylum. Yes. Dude, and like they would do this. Like I was really shocked about going through the top of the head because normally they go 
behind your eye with an ice pick, literally an ice pick, mm-hmm. and they hammer they it just into your brain. Scramble, scramble your brain. Yeah, up. yeah. So what they did was it was called a prefrontal lobotomy, and so they went in the top to basically cut off your prefrontal cortex. Yeah, and she just left what she was. She was a two year old. Yeah, it severs the connection in the brain's prefrontal cortex. Which is, I believe, where you process your emotions. Mm-hmm. It's also like kids have a hard time developing that. And that's why you shouldn't drink before you're 18 because you're still developing your prefrontal cortex. Yeah, prefrontal cortex, planning, decision-making, short-term memory, personality, expression, moderating social behavior, controlling certain aspects of speech and language. So like literally they're just like cutting out basically the part of your brain that gives you, a, you gives you. you a personality. Yeah. So, if this is how the cream of the crop, American royalty, was treated, we can only imagine the horrible things that people whose family didn't have money or social status were treated. This happened in 1941. Fortunately, in 1954, the use of antipsychotic medication started and gained momentum in the 60s. And in 1963, John F. Kennedy, Rosemary's brother, signed into law the Mental Retardation Facilities and Community Health Mental Health Centers Construction Act. This act. Hold on, let's let's repeat this <laughs> this whole act because it's a big one. Okay. The Mental Retardation Facilities and Community Mental Health Centers Construction Act. Is there an acronym? I'm sure it's M-R-F-C-M-H-C-C-A. Murfica, Murfica. So the thing that's interesting is I'm sure um, most of the people who listen to this podcast probably listen to Let's Get Haunted and or... Um, Lore. Lore and so yeah, they've both done stories about um, the Kennedys and the Kennedy curse and about Rosemary Kennedy. Um, and the thing that I find interesting that I have not heard from anyone else is that it was John F. Kennedy who signed that into law. And it didn't I mean, in all fairness, it really didn't do much because, again, there was no infrastructure. So he signed it and said communities have to build the infrastructure. It has to be community based. But the goal of this act was to make sure that people who are mentally ill were getting treatment at home. So then we have like psych wards in every hospital and people can get mental health treatment and they can go to their regular doctor and get antipsychotics and doing that so they weren't removed. Basically, in the D.C. universe, John F. Kennedy never signed this law. And that's why Batman has Arkham Asylum. Yes. Um. <laughs> so I just find it interesting that that was John F. Kennedy because he also hadn't seen his sister when, for 20 when, years. When was Kennedy president? Um, it was the 60s, right? Yeah, because so, he signed it in 1963. So. 1963. I believe it was either just before or just after that that Sylvia Plath was receiving shock therapy yeah. and insulin shock treatments. Well, so they still do shock therapy now, but they study it differently. And it's not just hooking people up to machines and shocking the shit out of them. It's like an actual study that people do. Yeah. Well, the I, I've had a friend that has had the the therapy, and it's not a shock therapy. It's an electromagnetic therapy. Oh, okay. So yeah. they hit your brain with electromagnetic pulses that, of course, you can't feel, but your your neurons basically get rewritten. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they did for my friend who went through this, um, basically 
she had severe PTSD where she was hyper fixated. And so they were like, let's just delete them memories like eternal sunshine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she got the therapy and it worked. Uh, yeah. But she, it, it was a little sad because when I went to talk to her again, she was like, I don't remember a lot of the things we did together because I was going through that trauma at the same time. And so that got uh, deleted, but I was like, okay, we'll just make more fun memories. I guess. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's that's how it works today. Before it was just like put some electrodes on you, and if you do the bad thing, you get zappy zap, and if you do the good thing, you get candy. Yeah. So yeah. Alrighty. This act changed everything for patients in asylums. It started the process of closing large institutionalized asylums and changing care to being in local communities so patients could stay with their families. The amount of patients in hospitals for mental health care in America at this time was over 555,000. By 1994, the number was reduced by 92%. This legislation paved the way for better mental health care in America, but we are still plagued by a mental health crisis. Of course. Because Kennedy's legislation was supposed to have patients released to more humane and caring facilities, and we had and have no infrastructure for that, our incarcerated and unsheltered populations have abnormally high amounts of mentally ill people. According to 2006 special report by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, people with mental illness are overrepresented in, popu- in probation and parole populations at an estimated rates ranging from 2 to 4% times the general population. Yeah, there's one crazy story about this guy. Uh, I haven't obviously done research, but he holds the world record for most, I guess, the American record for most prison escapes. Mm -hmm. And he's a guy with autism Mm -hmm. uh, who, I guess, his father died and uh, he had like a toolbox that was left to him by his father. But it was never explicitly said in his will. But in his brain, he was like, this is mine. Dad said he was going to leave it to me. But the rest of the family was like, no, you stole that. So he went to prison uh, or jail. And he was like, well, this is wrong. So I just... I'm just going to get out. I'm just going to get out. So he gets out. They catch him. He goes to jail again. And then he's like, this is wrong. Escapes again. He escapes again. And he keeps escaping. And I think he escaped like 12 times. (laughs) Uh, Like, (laughs) but... That is just an example for where we fail uh, these communities for people who are not neurotypical, you know? Yeah. And like, man, and there was that tragic um, shooting in Salt Lake uh, where – Yeah. Like trigger warning. um, But the the police officer shot a 13-year-old autistic boy – and his last words as he was bleeding to death were, tell my mom I love her. And it just seemed like there was no reckoning at all for the police. And, of course, it never feels like that. But in this particular case, I was like, come on, guys. What's happening? You know, what we something needs to be done. Um, the, the way that officers are responding to people with mental health issues by just murdering them like that is a huge problem today and they're talking about retraining they're talking about you know giving police more information but if you send like a a dude uh (laughs) with a gun (laughs) to solve the problem you know everything that everything looks like a nail to a hammer uh you know And I think, I mean, I think that's the thing, like, that's the point that I want to drive home. And, like, the question that I have, the next thing in my script is, 
what exactly has changed between 6500 BC to 25 to 1525 to 1941 to 2021 well what's different i would say that the biggest difference and I there absolutely was progress that is undeniable mm-hmm. that there there has been progress from okay grunk we drill hole in skull right. which is kind of what lobotomies were yeah, in no, the that's, 60s that's my point yeah 6500 BC, right, where we're like, oh, fucking cave people, right? They found cave drawings to 1525 when they're doing etchings of letting the fucking ghosts out of your brain to 1941. You sure head hole make voices go away, Gronk? Like, I mean, that's that's fucking insane to think about us continuing to do the same treatment that's basically getting the ghosts out. But lobotomies, uh, they don't happen anymore, which is very good, Mm -hmm. but... What's happened, I think, that is the biggest change and has been the driver of this progress the entire time, even though it was so slow, is community involvement and information. As we start getting more information, as we start learning better ways to communicate, mm-hmm. you know, we are finding better solutions for people. Uh, we are finding things that work. It is still, you know, a new science. Yeah. And – the new science has definitely made its horrible mistake. They gave the Nobel Peace Prize to the <laughs> dude who invented, fun. like, the worst mental health treatment <laughs> ever. ever. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but we have people in the community who are understanding that, like, like uh, Philippe, you know, mm-hmm. Philippe is over here just, like, treat them like people and, right. like, help them with occupational therapy and talk therapy. And we might be able to find solutions to to not treat these people as undesirables. As animals. Yeah. Literal animals. Yeah. That's what they thought. To, to not treat them as broken windows. Mm-hmm. And when you stop looking at people as, as broken windows, as just as like, thing that needs oh, to be fixed. I'm allowed to not care about that. Mm-hmm. You know, you you have what, – what you have is you're the fucking person who's supposed to help repair these windows. Yeah. Um, you well, know. And I think every person is, right? Every person is responsible for that in ways. And we can all do something small. We can ask someone how they're doing. We can, you know, support people in getting therapy and getting on medication. We can support people in their recovery from drugs and alcohol, from abuse. Like, there's a lot of things that we can each do individually. Yeah. And also, like, recognize when something is clearly wrong. When people are, you know, going out to break windows, like finding ways to to stop them, to educate people. And I think that's what's so good about mentalhealthyfit.org, who, who is, you know, the reason we're doing this bonus episode, is because they are driving community-based action. And that was always how Kennedy's thing was supposed to work. Yeah. It was always supposed to be community-based action rather than these, like, huge systems that were literally torturing people. And that he was like, and uh, people were paying. I don't think so. They were just, like, paying to be tortured. Their families were paying to have their mentally ill loved ones tortured in right. these facilities uh, under the guise of them getting better. Um, but I, I think that – I don't know. I don't know why Kennedy did it. Maybe he was filled with regret and maybe he didn't care and was just looking for – uh, you know, maybe just knew that it was a s- systemic problem that could be addressed. But 
Well, and this is so the interesting thing about the timing of this act is so uh, Rosemary, Rosemary, Rosemary had um, her lobotomy in 1941. She was institutionalized and sent around to different like houses and stuff and um, kept away from her family. No one in her family knew where she was for 20 years until her father died in 1961. Kennedy signed that act into law in 1963. So right after he knew about her. Yeah, he signed the within act. two years of people finding out about her. He was and like, Jesus, she was. Jesus Christ, you know, like he, he found out his sister was swept under the rug. Yeah. And disenfranchised then, entirely for political gain. Yeah. And that's so I mean, that's I think that's an important part of the story that we have to acknowledge and that we have to look at. And, you know, Rosemary actually did recover some stuff. She was able to talk like a six year old later in her life. She learned how to walk, but she walked with a limp Um, she never like became continent again. But I mean, I think like in the grand scheme of things, fuck it. If you can have a conversation. Yeah. If you got a if you got a spike in your brain and can have a conversation yeah, again and talk and be with your family. Yeah. And that's what they did is they actually moved her into a family home, like a family vacation home once her father died and she was allowed to be around her family. And so I think, I mean, I think that's really fucking heartbreaking and something that people don't really talk about. So now that we've gotten super vulnerable talking about families, I'm actually going to share my story of becoming a psychic and the work that I did and my abusive relationship and that kind of stuff, because this is such an important part of what I do. Here we go. I know. People We're always ask deep. this. So We're digging deep. We're going to go in. Um, I do want to say trigger warning. I don't have anything that talks distinctly about um, how the ways that I was abused. I do talk about um, suicide in this. So if those things trigger you, if you'd rather not listen to it, go ahead. Um, you know, you can you can end the episode here because this is pretty much how we're going to end things. All righty. My answer to the question of what has changed is not enough, but I think we're finally working on it. It is my opinion that the importance of religion and societal traditions falling away is the best thing that could have happened to our collective mental health. I know that I don't I haven't really spoken about this much, but the reason I so deeply believe and honor the work that I do is that it saved my life. I have struggled with anxiety and depression my entire life. When I was caught in an abusive relationship, I was continuously searching for tools to help me, and I was having night terrors and waking up screaming. I went to therapy, sought out medication only to have my abuser tell me that the only medication I could be on was ones that he would be able to sell for money. I skipped my next three therapy, therapy appointments, and when the office called to check in, I lied and told them that I was fine. The therapist said, well, it sounds like you just had a rough couple of weeks and are fine now. And that was three months into a nine-month-long abusive relationship that ended in my abuser attempting suicide when I left him. I was so depressed and isolated, I knew that if I didn't leave my relationship, the only way I would escape was dying. And at the very end of my rope, I went to an abbey in, Cal- in Colorado, and I asked a priest to bless me. I told him that I was unable to live with any more hate in my heart and that I wanted God's help. In that moment of surrender, I was saved. Two weeks and a whole bunch of bullshit later, I was moved back into my parents' house, a freshly dropped out college kid with no ambition, direction, or hope. And my grandmother, who had died 10 months earlier, came to me in a dream, and I found a medium near me to connect with her. It's interesting you went from, uh, I'm going to talk to this priest, God saved me, to... Let's do witchcraft and necromancy. Like well, right so, after. Um, there was so many. I guess the thing. Elle was taking a sip. If yeah, you want to know my, my water what, bottle. What, what the hollow effect on her <laughs> voice was. Yeah, it was. I was having a sip of water. Um, I guess the thing to note about this is that 
I started being told when I was 18 that I was going to be a professional psychic someday. I was getting psychic readings, and every psychic told me I was going to be a professional psychic. And I was headed off to school to go become um, a theater manager. Destiny's fake. You can't tell me what to do. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to move to Chicago. I'm going to own a theater, and this is is all I'm ever – this is all I want. That's all I want. And um, they were like, yeah, that's not going to happen. You're going to be a professional psychic. So I knew – that that was – I guess that there was that part of me that knew that. And I was seeing ghosts. My mother, like, started buying me tarot cards when I was, like, 15. So there was always that part of me that was open to it. I also, like, searched for God anywhere I could find it. Like, I would go to any church. Like, for a long time when I was in college, my friend and I actually went to a Catholic church every Sunday just because I wanted to connect to God. I just was searching for something that was that spiritual connection that I now understand to be, like, my oh, guides. You're ripe and juicy for the missionaries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ripe and juicy. So I was really – I was searching for that. So I always knew that there was, like, this other part of it. And the priest was just – my ex-boyfriend, my abuser, um, was a medium. And he would would see and hear and talk to ghosts. And he had been punished for that. He was sent to all sorts of therapy. Um, His father just abused the ever-living shit out of him for being a medium. And that was, like, kind of a cornerstone of our relationship that I had this thing about me and he had that thing about him. And um, he was haunted. I mean, like, his house was really fucking haunted. There were, like, demons in his house. It was terrifying. And he had gone to the Abbey and was like, I need a priest to come bless my house. (laughs) So I went to the Abbey one day. um, It was actually the day my best friend's husband died when she was 19. She was widowed at 19, and it was the day her husband killed himself. And um, I had gone to this abbey before I even knew what happened. And I just, I like, God, I've never hated people more than I hated my ex and his ex-girlfriend who also abused me. And I just couldn't live with it. I was like, I'm going to fucking kill myself. That was, I mean, that was it. As I was like down to the rope, and I was down to like the very last thing I could try. And I went to this priest, and I just said, I can't live with this anymore. And I need help. And he was like, okay. And he prayed with me. And I don't know. Yo, here I am. If you would have run into some Mormon missionaries, you'd have been a very different person. Mm-hmm. That is everything they are told they told us to look for in the missionary training center and all through seminary. That is everything. It was like you you find the people that are questioning because subconsciously in their hearts, they know that <laughs> they're missing the one true gospel. And then you show up and give it to them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So definitely, I mean, my life would have been very different, but this is kind of how it ended up. And I don't know. I Yeah, just weird. So from there, my first mentor in Psychic became my confidant. He talked me through every moment I wanted to go back to my abuser and challenged me to leave the past in the past and keep moving forward. He has his degree in biology and he studied the Gardasil vaccine. He was an amazing proponent of me going to therapy when I was ready and supported my journey with antidepressants. Because of this, because this was my introduction to psychics, I have never once seen spirituality and science as incompatible or contrary. And I found that my way to recovery and um, healing was a combination of the two. While I was in therapy, I was beginning my career as a professional psychic. I explained that to my therapist, and throughout my therapy, she found ways to weave into my belief, my belief into the work I was doing on a mental and emotional self. At the same time, I was doing talk therapy and medication. I was receiving weekly uh, massage therapy from an energy worker who worked out of the same shop that I read in. I spent many Thursday mornings crying in therapy and Friday mornings on the massage table as I worked to undo a life of mental illness and the ever-present trauma of abuse. RJ. 
I know your story and your journey with mental health and illness. I know. Y'all y'all heard snippets of this drama on the podcast. Do you ever think that you found comfort for something in your mental illness or mental health um, that was esoteric or spiritual? No. Never? No. In fact, I went 100% the opposite way because a lot of what exacerbated my condition to the point for you, it was an abuser. For me, it was the church. Yeah. Um, well, same thing. Yeah. I mean, really, really and truly, same thing. Um, you know, so I, m- the things that I guess you could say spiritually supported me was – Art and learning about other people, connecting with other people uh, in a way that see, that was organic rather than just this like forced like we have to be friends because we're in the same ward. Yeah. We, you know, um, it for me, what sort of, I guess, if you could say saved me spiritually, I didn't go into spiritualism or religion. I didn't, you know, buy crystals or look, get into astrology. I know a lot of people who are ex-Mormon do that. Yeah, uh, I think it's familiar to them. Too. Yeah, they want to fill the void and also like they're predisposed to these kinds of beliefs. And sometimes mm-hmm. they just end up falling into other cults like Scientology. Yeah, for sure. Um, but for me, it was open mic night. <clears throat> open mic night changed everything for me and this might be really hard for me to say because one of the the guys who started coming at the same time i started going to open mic um just took his own life recently um and uh, that was like really hard for me to like see but you know this pandemic it's just, fucking brutal it's, it's, it's brutal it's sort of the open mic was one of my horcruxes mm-hmm. you know like it still kind of is but it's not happening because of the pandemic um and i know it was a lot of people's lifeline like i fell into that because it was a lifeline mm-hmm. because there was a community of people who were all fuck-ups uh <laughs> but they were there to to catch you i met some crazy people some crazy people who are just into crazy things. Uh, I, I met an escort who spends $3,000 oh a week on clothes and LSD and never washes clothes because she just buys new ones. Uh, you know, but this was somebody that I made a connection with. Are they like a perfect, wholesome person? <laughs> no, but they're a person. And I was able to be like, hey, I'm fucked up too. We're people, you know, we have our we have our things and I'm not going to judge you for your life decisions, um, but I'm not going to make those decisions either. Right. Well, and I think I mean, I think the community aspect of spirituality and that being there for me and me understanding like there was no pressure at this time in my life to be perfect, to be good, to be fucking anything like I literally at this point in my life. I Like, my mental illness was so bad. And I've always been, like, I'm sure people can tell I'm a bit of a, I do whatever the fuck I want. And I'm not really interested in what people think about that. I think you could probably call me a free spirit or a hippie or whatever the fuck. Like, probably just a feminist who doesn't really give a fuck about making other people happy is what I am. And um, at this time in my life, I mean, I... <laughs> Forever, I always gave my parents problems. Like, I would never come home on time. I just wanted to go be free and experience life and go to concerts and travel and just do everything. And when I left this relationship and moved back in my parents' house, I remember probably two months into me living with my parents again, um, 
one of my friends came to dinner with us and she was like, oh, this guy uh, wants us to go to coffee. Do you want to come with me? And my mom literally <laughs> shoved me out of the door and told my friend Gabby, do not bring her back unless it is 2 a.m. Like she is staying out. She's got to go like get her into some trouble. I don't give a fuck if you're taking her drinking. Like just go let her be free for a minute. I mean, it just it fucking broke me. Like I and I'm still broken in so many ways from that relationship, but it shaped me in really, really meaningful ways. And I'm really passionate about this work because it was the thing that, you know, I found that saved me in those moments. And I know that feeling of abuse and I know what that is to like feel like you don't have anything left. And yeah, this is this is how I found it. But I think it was the community that told me, like, you're great, broken. That's cool. We dig that. Yeah. That's fancy. That's, Be broken. That's what I sort of learned at Greenhouse Effect was to celebrate the things I was told made me inadequate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that alone literally saved my life. It does, um, yeah. Because then you're like, wait. I'm not going to be shamed for this thing that I've always been. And then you can accept it. And then you can be like, well, maybe this is an okay thing. Yeah. And I've hosted that semi-underground open mic night <laughs> for like fucking, let's see, I started in 2013. Yeah. I started hosting it after the 2013 National Poetry Slam. Uh, so 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. So that's. Eight? Eight years. Yeah. And we're currently on pause because of the pandemic <laughs> yeah. with some engagement on the Facebook group. But I do I do feel like I lost one of my horcruxes. I have other horcruxes. I know. You know I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket over <laughs> but here. But it's but still hard. I still lost one of my horcruxes to this pandemic. And I guess for some people that was their last horcrux. Yeah. Uh, at least for Dan, yeah, it was. Well, I mean, I think the thing I think about when people die by suicide is like, first of all, I talk to a lot of people who've died by suicide, like their spirits. And honestly, they're just happy that they don't have to suffer anymore. And that's a hard thing. That's like a weird way to look at it. But if you think about the amount that you love them, like that their spirit is still there. And um, when you're looking at people who have addiction, who have abuse issues, it can be really hard to feel like, oh, my God, if they couldn't make it, then I can't make it. And I think that's a really common thing when people die by suicide, especially if you've been, like, on the fence or if you've been, like, barely fucking holding it together, which please show me someone through this that hasn't been barely fucking holding it together, you know? Um, um, Jeff Bezos. No, he's been— No, he's, yeah, he's, he, he lost his title. He's not a CEO anymore. Yeah, he's not the richest person anymore. He's not a CEO anymore, and he had that divorce. And then his wife gave half of, half of his assets to charity. <laughs> I, I wouldn't you, say he's barely hanging on, though. Yeah, exactly. Like, So I just think— I don't know. We're doing our best, but if you can look at the, the people who are gone as—they're okay— you know, he's okay. Okay. I'm going to jump into the rest of this. Oh, there's um, more. Well, this is like we're going to go into the study okay. of religious because this is just more talking about like the combination. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Long episode. We're going in. Lots of fascinating things to talk about. Okay. I have one more study for you guys from the study, Religious Involvement and the Use of Mental Health Care, which was completed in, a two in 2006. Conclusion. The positive relationship between religious service participation and service use for those in serious distress suggests that pol policy initiatives aimed at increasing the timely and appropriate use of mental health care may be able to build upon structures and referral processes that currently exist in religious organizations. John Petit, an associate professor, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, has some thoughts on the combination of religious-slash-spirituality and mental health. 
our religious slash spirituality is referred to as r slash s in the rest of this, just so everyone mm. knows. R slash s. Because I don't want to say it. It sounds like a BDSM thing. Could be. I don't know. Is not. That's fine. Okay. How can religious communities and mental health professionals collaborate to reduce the emotional suffering and the stigma of mental illness and address patients' R slash S needs? Consider briefly some conceptual and practical aspects of this challenge. Psychiatry and the and R slash S both aim to enhance human flourishing, understanding this to involve the development of adaptive capacities, for example, to be reflective and regulate emotion, a solid identity, realistic hopes, meaningful activities, authentic relationships, and mature moral life and a balance between autonomy and respect for authority. However, they differ in emphasis and role, with R slash S placing greater emphasis on growth and transformation towards full functioning than on critical thinking about diagnosis and treatment of disorders, as well as greater emphasis on relationship to the transcendent and one's community than to the individual mastery of self as a mean towards as a means towards these ends. I mean in a theistic religion I, I think um, that absolutely applies. But there are definitely more mindful religions mm -hmm. like Zen. Well, and so I'm going to talk about the ways that that gets incorporated kind of in my stuff and then like an example of that in modern mental health care. Mm -hmm. So because I agree. I just thought that was really fascinating, especially coming from an associate professor at Harvard, you know? Yeah, I was like, the study is going to be from BYU. I feel like BYU has studied the fuck out of this. Right. No, yeah. That's why I was like, I want to look at He's a psychiatrist. He's a psychiatrist at Harvard. So, yeah. Petit goes on to note that the real issue that takes place in using spirituality and religion in conjunction with mental health treatment is the lack of respect and communication between the two fields. There are good reasons to be concerned about this lack of communication and collaboration. Communities which view spiritual and psychiatric interventions as competing alternatives can discourage much-needed medication and therapy. Mentally ill individuals are sometimes not only stigmatized and misunderstood, but mistreated, as when a bipolar patient is physically restrained or rejected, or a woman with a trauma history is restrained by a male clergy during an exorcism. Conversely, religious individuals discouraged by therapists from participating in faith communities stand to miss out on opportunities to understand their narrative as part of a larger story, enhance their relationship with a forgiving God, which... Man, we don't need anyone to forgive us, but that's okay. And support of others or finding ways to give back. However, we can find instances of spirituality being an almost essential in an almost essential part in mental health recovery. The book, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, is used for so many recovery groups. I personally studied this when I was supporting a loved one in addiction recovery. Because I'd been in this industry for so damn long, I was really familiar with the text and the principles. I was shocked to see that this work as part of a workbook from one day when I went to friends and family night with them. And I was even more shocked to see how seamlessly it applied to their recovery. The four agreements are, one, be impeccable with your word. Two, don't take anything personally. Three, don't make assumptions. And four, Always do your best. I'm going to share just a little bit about my experience. So the Mormon church has its own psychiatrists. Oh my God. Yeah, it does. They have their own psychiatrists. They have their own department of workforce services. They have their own food stamps. Um, and when I came back initially from my mission, I started seeing the church psychiatrist. And he just put me on the – you know how you play musical medications um, and you, you try one. It doesn't work. You try another one. It doesn't work. You know how it goes. But he had some electrodes in his office and I recognized them because it had like a crown with like mm. metal – yeah. rods and a TENS unit. And I knew what a TENS unit was because yeah. I'd seen it advertised on TV. And I was like, what's that for? 
And he said, oh, something you don't have to worry about. Um, but now, like looking back, he was doing conversion therapy. Yeah. Uh, as part of like religious psychiatry. This is, I guess, for me, why, yeah, I'm sure that these fields can communicate, but they should not be incestuous. Um, I agree. They like definitely these fields should communicate, but the church should not own your psychiatrist. No. And if you're going to a psychic and you're needing serious, serious help, them saying you don't need a therapist, you don't need to be on medication, that's not a good psychic to be using. And also, uh, if they're pretending to be your therapist, um, very, very bad. Uh, and like having like a church psychiatrist to refer people to on paper, great idea. Great idea. And this research seems to support that idea. But it also creates specific bias uh, towards certain treatment that might not be for everyone. As in, you might want to leave that religion because it could be the source of the problem. No, for sure. But I think that's why you would need a therapist like outside. And I think really the idea here is not that – Oh, your all of your recovery and anything that you do that's good is based in the fact that you have um, a religion helping you. They're really looking at it more as like mindfulness and support for that. So like a means towards giving back to your community. So then you're more involved in your community. A means towards finding more people. So people who are in AA having group therapy, group therapy is so effective because you have other people that understand what you're going through that can be non-judgmental. And so it's saying that you can use those things in conjunction with, but not instead of. And like just using th- just using religion as a way to treat your mental illness is not going to work. And believing that the only thing you need to treat your mental illness is medication is not going to fucking work. And both of those things are problems. So there has to be some way that you can combine the two in order to really be fully balanced there. Yeah. See, I don't I don't even know if you should combine them. Uh, I, I think that they should be uh, as the way our government is, was supposed to be, which is you have a separation between the two. But we're not talking about the government. But, we're talking about mental But they care. communicate. I know. But for me, I feel like you need to keep religion separate. What do you think about what I do? Uh, I think what you do is provide spiritual support and give people advice uh, when they need it. So how is that bad for mental health care? Uh, it's not. But if you were to create a multi-billion dollar uh, organization. We're, we're just talking <laughs> about the simple combination of the two, not how that can get perverse, not how it can get fucked up, but just that they can support each other. Yeah. And like having them support each other, I think is good. But that's what I'm saying. But I don't think that they should be the same thing as, but in, they com- aren't. as in combined. They're, and he's not saying that. He's just saying that it's shown to help people recover if they have that extra added religion or spirituality, not looking at one or the other, just saying that people who have that tend to have an easier time recovering. Yeah. Uh, and if they're not communicating, obviously, uh, something that you learn in church, uh, could make you feel worse. And then your therapist has to undo some of that. Well, so then you go to therapy and you talk to your therapist and you have that, and then you have your religion. But the point is that you would have a therapist who looks at that and says, oh, this is a valid way of supporting my client. Maybe I can support him by saying, okay, if praying makes you feel better, maybe we should pray. Maybe that's a source of comfort for you. Whether or not it helps, it's just hope, right? Just putting it out there for someone to respond to if you're into praying. I'm not into praying, so I wouldn't do that. But then also if you have a spiritual counselor like me who says, you know what this sounds like? A good time to get a therapist. 
that's not bad. That's understanding your roles and how these things need to interplay with each other. Right. So finally, I have this thought. Obviously, this isn't the only example of using spirituality to support mental health treatment and recovery. I'm personally not especially faith-based. I have a personal philosophy that the universe is pretty unfeeling and cold. I don't believe that there's a God out there somewhere gauging how I performed and my attitude and all of that. I really think that the universe is just a reflection of what we put out there. I believe in being kind because I like my life more when I'm kind. I believe in choosing love instead of anger because I feel better when I'm not angry. I help people because I like being around happy people. Some people would look at that as a spiritual attitude and a spiritual way of living. I think that people should just do the things that make them aware, in tune, and happy, and that those things shouldn't be the, at the expense of anyone else. Well, there you go. So that's my thought. Yeah. We're just going to look at each other because Arjun is like, I disagree with your conclusion, what? which is why no, I wrote I, this. I, I don't know if that's the end of the script. Yeah, I was just looking at you. Oh. So the question I asked at the end of this is, are you convinced or not so much? But I already know the answer to that. Now, you think I'm not convinced? You aren't. Um, so here's the thing. Um, I think that it 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 can get very do- – mostly because I lived through having church psychiatry uh, and how awful it was and then realizing how much more awful it got for other people. Um, so uh, for me – Adding a spiritual practice to your mental health treatment, that's a great idea. If, if it's something that, that works for you, if it helps you, that's a great idea. In fact, in order to define something as an illness, uh, a mental illness or not, uh, it has to negatively impact your life. So you could totally hear voices and like see hallucinations and stuff. Um, but if it doesn't negatively impact your life, it's not considered an illness. It's only considered an illness when – It causes harm to yourself or others. Um, So if you feel like having some sort of religion or ritual or spiritual support is necessary for your recovery, go ahead and do that. But don't let – don't let it become – the don't, only don't the only thing you do. Let it be part of what you are doing. Yeah. Uh, And I've definitely known people who are like – Ah, uh, yeah. At night, I hear the voice of my grandmother telling me that I'm doing a great job. <laughs> and I'm like, cool. That's, you know, they're like, I'm worried that, like, maybe I shouldn't be hearing voices. And I'm like, I mean, they're not telling you to go murder people. You're probably fine. Uh, you know, if if it's not impacting you negatively, then it's not an illness. It's something worth celebrating. If it is impacting you negatively, then yeah, you work on yourself and you find what works for you. And, you know, some people, um, and, and I do think that people who are into psychology and psychiatry should study the religious practices because for a long time, that was all people had mm-hmm. and it did a lot of awful stuff, but sometimes stuff worked, uh, you know, um, <coughs> uh, Things like meditation and um, confession, uh, things that served as basically rudimentary forms of the therapy that we know today um, are worth studying and are worth learning about because it impacts us anyway. Uh, And and by learning about even the fucked up things, uh, you you can learn what not to do and you can learn what the pitfalls are so that – you know, we can avoid them as we try to create um, infrastructure and progress for well, the, the people around us. 
something that you need to be challenged to assess is like looking at how we can create those things without them being based in trauma and the fact that those things can be instrumental and helpful without having that traumatic point, but that it takes work from all sides to make that. And that's the thing. Like I'm personally um, really obviously passionate and into my work because I believe so thoroughly in the things that I've seen and the ways that I've seen like the work that I do being used like at fucking rehab and like helping people with those things and helping them with mindfulness and how that can be very instrumental in informing the two, but that we have to understand that the way we've done it in the past is not going to be the way that we need to do it in the future. And the only thing, if you've learned nothing, nothing, nothing at all from this episode, if you like don't find it interesting that JFK like wrote that act and made that be changed after his sister was like discovered to be this basically an animal they turned her into an animal and if you don't think that that's like fucked up if you're like oh that's whatever it's fine and the only thing you take away from this is that we are such babies in all of our mental health care and there has to be ways that we can reform this not only for people who can afford insurance and not only for the people who like desperately need mental health care but that we all need mental health care and we have to be treating it as an essential part of of health and uh, I think that takes us back to uh, ancient Asia with the, the the spirit and the body mm-hmm. both being things that can be sick. Yep. Um, and, they uh, had it figured out. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that a lot of that is really the basis um, for a lot of what therapy works today is your mental health is a hygiene thing as much mm-hmm. as it is, you know uh part of you mm-hmm. like you've got to handle your mental health and you can see like how weird and like bizarre thing like we lived through 2020 I know. and all the people doing stuff that like you'd never you'd never think things got so fucking insane because people like just the mental health care is abhorrent right now it's so bad and like i i'm not saying that oh, all these people are mentally ill. I'm saying that they have poor mental hygiene. Well, Um, they're being put in situations that make people crazy. Everything about corona is not things that we should be doing mentally. And so we're like trying to like hunker, hunker down. And literally what we are doing right now is, God, I hope enough of us make it to the future for us to have something left. That's it. That's what we're doing. Yeah. And that's awful. And we have to find ways moving forward and moving beyond this to change that. And we have to build infrastructure. And we have to allow and utilize, I think, just in our own personal practice, some sort of connection to the world that's beyond us. And I think spirituality and religion are so much just that finding your place in the world. And one day I will share a rant about corporate mindfulness and how mental yeah. health has been turned into a corporate profit center to make you a more efficient worker rather than a more healthy person. But that is a discussion for another time. <laughs> it sure is. Um, all right. Well, that is our show today. I'm not doing a reading because I just gave y'all the, it's the deepest, bonus. darkest. It's the bonus. Be happy you got a bonus. Parts of my trauma. <laughs> So now y'all know why I'm so fucked up and why I'm here. Um, hit us up on Patreon and I'll do a reading for you on the show using whatever divination method we're covering. Patreon.com slash Mansi. If you like the show, please share with your friends. I'm really proud of the show. I feel like I've been geeking out over the show for a long time and I put a lot of effort into it. I'm going to read you all my sources um, because I'm that kind of a person. So definitely share this show. Let us know how we can support you. If you'd like to get a reading from me, you can find me on my Etsy at Laurels of Lux, which is 
is also my Twitter handle, RJ. Um, if you like my writing and uh, want to read or hear my poems, rjwalkerpoet.com. Check out the, for an easy way to share the podcast, mancypodcast.com. We got a website. It's got my bio on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely check out menti- mentalhealthyfit.org uh, for, you know, helping us make this episode possible. When we get supporters on Patreon and sponsors and stuff, it gives us the ability to go above and beyond with the content we bring you. Yeah. Uh, so maybe Elle will write more episodes in the future. Yeah, if y'all liked my episode, let me know and um, I will work on writing some more. You guys can also donate to us directly on Venmo, which is at Dollar Compliments, and RJ will give you a bullshit tarot reading. I will. I will draw a tarot card and I will just make stuff up. <laughs> um, the music was provided by, in order of appearance, Hayden Fulker, me, you, and Scott Buckley. My sources for this episode are. This is such a good source. Socialstudiesforkids.com. The girls of the Salem Witch Trials, because I was looking specifically for the girls. And then Religious Involvement and Use of Mental Health Care um, by Health Services Research. Um, Abnormal Psychology by Lumen, which um, Kessler, K. Chesler, sorry, is the author. And then Introduction to Psychology on Lumen. And The Interface Between Religion, Spirituality, and Mental Health by Petit John. Uh, Wikipedia, Rosemary Kennedy, and finally, I did a lot of resources, like a lot of research, using the four agreements during your recovery holistic rehab from Iris Healing. And if you guys want to know any of the sources I use for the other episodes, here's what they are. Wikipedia, associated links with the Wikipedia page, like I'll click on the, the, the reference in the Wikipedia page, and also Occult World has helped a lot. Uh, Occult World, solid source if you want to know about a Mansi. <laughs> Great place to start. Are you shamed because I list my sources? Are you like, maybe a little. I get it. But that's fine. I used Wikipedia for one of them. Thank you guys. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>